I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Today, we welcome Samantha Lucas, who has been practicing Mysore style Ashtanga yoga since 2006, which she found after six years practicing other styles. Since her first trip to India in 2008, Samantha has returned almost annually to continue her studies at the KPJAYI Ashtanga Yoga Institute, which authorized her to teach in 2014. In 2016, Sam was in a motorcycle accident where she lost her right leg below the knee. From her second day in the hospital on, she continued her yoga practice in bed, connecting with the breath and what movements she could do. Though the ups and downs were enormous, now 14 surgeries later, she is feeling almost as strong as she did before the accident. Sam believes that yoga is experiential and one can only grow by practicing. As you will hear in this episode, Samantha is also the survivor of multiple traumas which have impacted her life and for which yoga and meditation have been great practices. Sam will share the ways the trauma she's experienced have shown up in her personality and how yoga has shifted that. The number one advice she would give yoga teachers when sharing the practice, the single tool she used to cure phantom pain, our epiphany since our last talk, why we need others for our recovery, and the gains from long-term practice. She has great advice for teachers facing students with resistance. As you listen, I encourage you to reflect on your experience with independence. Does it help you or get in your way? Or a little bit of both? And how does your experience with independence or codependence come from your past experiences? Please note that this episode does touch on the experiences of trauma and even some suicidal thoughts. Make sure that you are in the right place to listen. And if you are, you're going to come away with some great takeaways. Here we go. Sam, welcome back. (laughs) Thank you for giving us a second round, second try with this interview. No problem. A little bit of a learning curve here, but welcome back because I'm really glad that you committed to coming back because it's so important to me, to share your unique story, your experiences, the lessons that you've learned and your honesty and your truth. I think a lot of people can learn from you. So um, I'm very excited to interview you. And I learn so much from you every time we talk that I know it will, um, it only keeps getting deeper. And so I wanted to start today by asking you, in your mind, do you have a, a definition of this word trauma? What is trauma? I think how I would define it is something that's happened that creates rippling effects in your reactions, your behavior, your perceptions of on as your life progresses, honestly. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That has that ongoing rippling effect as life progresses. Right. Because it frames how you think it frames how you react, not always in a good way. (laughs) Um, It changes how you deal with stuff. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I know that Sam, you have experienced quite a number of traumas in your life. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry for that. And I and I wonder how those have impacted you and if there are any specifically that you're open to sharing with us today. Well, I mean, I guess we'll go back to probably my first trauma is that it's kind of a tricky thing to talk about is that I'm adopted. I never really thought of it as a trauma per se, but it is traumatic. And I felt like even though I was adopted by really amazing parents, there's still some things that happen emotionally when you are basically abandoned or given up by your biological parents. And whether it be, it took me a long time to realize that it's like a subconscious behavioral patterns that is something. I mean, I don't classify my adoption as traumatic, but I think like if we go back to what we were just saying about the definition, it does change how you react even on a subconscious level. So that was the first thing. And then when I was between 10 and 11, I was molested by a family member. And that again, as a child, you you don't have the you think that you're doing something wrong and that sticks with you. Even when you do get therapy and do have, as an adult, I got therapy. When I was a child, I didn't. It was all very much brushed under the rug. And so that that definitely wasn't a healthy reaction. But back in the, you know, 30 years ago, that's, you know, 35 years ago, that's how people dealt with this sort of stuff a lot of the time. And therapy was an embarrassment, you know, that you were weak if you needed therapy. And, and so it was an embarrassment that you were talking, airing your dirty laundry out to other people outside of the family. And and that's not so healthy, but it was, you know, the coping mechanisms that were used. And it took me a very long time until I got into therapy as an adult to realize that it wasn't my fault, that I didn't cause that at all. So that, again, changes how you relate to people. It also creates walls that create patterns in your behavior. Like when you can't control a situation when you're a child, often that becomes one of the typical traits is perfectionism as an adult and having to have control over everything and having to have everything perfect. And we all know how, how perfect we are, right? Mm. <laughs> that perfection is, is not a reality. It's not attainable. And that causes, you know, anxiety and stress when you realize that perfection isn't attainable, that that's kind of a fallacy that things are perfect ever. And so it creates this pattern of kind of falling into a hole because you're striving for an unattainable goal because you're trying to control everything. And so anyway, that takes a lot of therapy and I'm still in therapy dealing with that because I still want things to be perfect. Plus I'm a Virgo and (laughs) I like things a certain way. And, you know, it's probably why I was drawn to Ashtanga first of all, because of the regimen of it, you know, the, the form of it, it makes sense first of all. And then it also there, I liked the rules, like having that structure really, it just made sense to me. 
So that's definitely because I practiced a number of different yogas, type styles of yoga before asana, let's say, before finding Ashtanga. And it resonated with me, but it wasn't, it didn't fully click. Mm -hmm. And then when I found Ashtanga, then it just like after like day three, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like life changing. So yeah. Yeah. So you were, so that, yeah, go on. So, well, so then (laughs) I'm kind of like, it's kind of a lot, but uh, so then in my late thirties, I went through a divorce, which was not very fun. My ex decided that he was done and he hadn't, we hadn't talked about it. He hadn't told me or anything. And and he just left. And uh, that was a huge struggle. I went into a massive like clinical depression Mm. after that. Like I didn't want to live anymore. I I just, he was a narcissist. And and when he left, he just made me feel just, you know, narcissists, they do it kind of covertly. Like it's kind of insidious. Like they kind of break you down over time. And my self-esteem was at an all-time low and and then he left. Mm. And then, and that just made it worse. So it was like, I was just really didn't see the, I didn't see the point of living anymore, which is terrible that you would let somebody else like kind of make you feel this way but it snuck up on me like I had lost my identity I was I did whatever he wanted and it was always what he wanted and I just I lost who I was and so then you have to find that and that was when I found Ashtanga Yoga I was living in China we had sold everything in the U.S. and because we wanted to learn Chinese and so we had moved to China And then after living there for, I guess it was, we were there for like a year, year and a half. And that's when we broke up. And, but I still had a job that I had signed a contract to do in China. And so I I was kind of stuck. And so I, I continued to work, but I, I worked on a oil rig. So I would work for a month teaching English on an oil rig to the Chinese nationals that were on that oil rig. And then I would come be off for a month. And so that's how, where I found like my source style, Ashtanga Yoga, I I went to Thailand and before I quit my job in China and came back to the U.S., I wanted to travel a little bit. And so I had planned a trip to Cambodia, Laos and Thailand. And the first part of it, I knew because on the oil rig, I was just, it was kind of a good place because I could hide and I really enjoyed teaching English. I felt like it was something I was really good at. And so it was kind of a great place to hide for a number of months while I was trying to heal from the divorce. So then the month, one month off, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go do a trip. And I knew that I, I'd been kind of wallowing for about four months. And then, so I decided it was April and I planned a trip, like I said, to Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos. And Thailand was the first place. And I had said, well, I really need to do some yoga. So I just Googled Thailand and yoga. And Paul Dalligan's place on Koh Samui came up. And I was very lucky. All the teachers I had ever had were always very, very intelligent. And they really taught me how to kind of seek out the really great teachers. Mm. And places. And when I read Paul's website, I was like, well, he seems like he's really dedicated and, and he studies with Pranayama master and, and with 
the Joyce family. And, and so I went there and, and I had no idea the first day I got there, I was like, what do you mean you have to memorize the practice? Like they don't lead you. Like (laughs) I had no idea what, what self-practice was. And, and they're like, Oh, don't worry. And I'll, and you know, it's so funny because some people get really nervous about the first time in a Mysore room. I was like, okay, I didn't have that nervousness at all. I just went in and literally within three days, that's when it just, I was like, this is just the best I've ever I just resonated with it. It just mm. clicked. And so instead of going to Cambodia and Laos, I completely canceled that and ended up staying. And I quit my job. I quit my job. I stayed at Yoga Thailand, or it was Yoga Thailand at the time. It's now Samhita. But I ended up staying there for six weeks and quit my job in China because I knew I had to leave that and get into a healthier space. And yeah, and then I came to New York. So yeah, it was crazy. Wow. What what made you think like I I have to do yoga that that was going to be the thing that was going to help you get through this time? Well, I had already been practicing when I was in college. I went back to university when I was um, in my late 20s and I was working on a I was doing pre-med at University of Washington and I have terrible like terrible test anxiety. Like I will know I can learn it. I can do the problems. I can, you know, and in science, it's a lot of, you know, working out problems, whether it be chemical with chemistry or biology, you know, the pathways that you have to take to get to ends. And I would know the answers and then I would get into the test and I would just shut down. Like I could not, because it was timed and then it's competitive. You know, you're on a curve in those big universities Mm -hmm. for pre-med. So it's like, if you were below the curve, you were going to fail. And so that just added even more stress. And so somebody had suggested, so my ex used to work at Microsoft and we had this friend who she was like brilliant. She did, she went to MIT with computer science and she did a master's in her undergrad in five years at MIT. So she's, she's a bright lady and she worked at Microsoft for a long time and she had decided, started practicing yoga and somebody had said, why don't you go? Her name was Holly Grabowski is Holly Grabowski in Seattle. And And so I started practicing with her and because she's such an intelligent lady, she was one of the first people. Now she had studied with one of Iyengar's main students. Like that's where she did most of her studies. And as much as I loved it, I still, it didn't resonate with me as it did. And I practiced two or three times a week and I could never practice by myself. I could never like, because we would do something different every single week, I was never able to do like a sunset, which is ridiculous now that I think about it because it's not that hard. But I just was like, well, there's so many postures to choose from. How do you choose what goes next? And I, you know, I would like play around, but I needed to be in a class. And then when I lived in China, there was a really great studio in Beijing and they had an Iyengar teacher. They had a who was really great. They had a vinyasa teacher who was also really great. And then they had a Ashtanga teacher who didn't teach Mysore, but in hindsight, he taught the sequence, but in a really basic way and and not in the way that you would memorize it to do it yourself. Yeah. So I had dabbled in it. I was also a runner at that point. I was running a lot. I'd run a couple marathons in, in Seattle. Oh, wow, Samantha. I didn't know that. Yeah, I did Seattle Marathon and then I did Whidbey Island up north, which is really beautiful. If anybody's runner out there, Whidbey Island Marathon is spectacular. Like it's so, so beautiful. But yeah, so that's why I knew, and yoga had always, you know, there was always that thing that it had 
it had kind of got my head on straight to some degree, not to the level that Ashtanga did, but I knew that it was good for me. So that was why I was like, well, maybe this will really help. So let's go and just go explore and and maybe dive a little bit deeper into a yoga practice and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. You felt like something about yoga practice cleared your head. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, And even though I hadn't I wasn't practicing it that seriously. There was still something about it. Like it, it definitely, yeah, there was a clarity that you get from it. And so I, I I mean, the thing was, is it, it didn't really help my test anxiety because obviously, you know, yoga takes years to really get in deep. I mean, there's some, a lot of superficial benefits, obviously, as you start, but I think to really change behaviors and start changing how you react and that sort of thing that takes a lot longer and more work with a yoga practice, whether it be meditation or an asana practice. It didn't solve the test anxiety problem. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't solve everything right away. (laughs) We're not going to make any false claims here. Like start yoga and tomorrow you will have no more test anxiety. (laughs) Well, I remember I was reading Yogananda's book that first year. And there's this whole part where he talks about going to school and that he wouldn't study and he wasn't ready for the exams. And then he'd just miraculously do well on the exams. And I was like, what the heck? That's ridiculous. I, I was like, that made me so mad. <laughs> I was like, why didn't that happen to me? <laughs> Maybe because I'm not yeah. enlightened like Yogananda was. <laughs> anyway, I, that made me mad. I even asked somebody, I was like, I asked Paul, I was like, what the heck? And he was like, well, you know, he was enlightened. So things had happened differently when you're in that state of mind, like of consciousness. And I was like, okay, whatever. And that was very early on. I was just, I didn't believe it at all at the time. I was just mad. It's like, why couldn't that happen to me in my pre-med study? <laughs> I mean, totally valid. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this stuff out there you read about yoga. And I think, it, you know, in some cases it can really inspire us, yeah. right? Like, ah, I want to get that benefit too. And and then in some cases, it's it can also turn us off sometimes when that's not happening because everyone's root is so individual. Right. We can't really make a, a claim for anyone and everyone. Yeah, that's right. Well, and you know, the beauty of it is, is that was when things, I think yoga gave me the courage, Ashtanga specifically, kind of made me strong. Like it gave me the courage to start delving into some of my stuff, which I had never done before, really. I, you know, I'd never really gone to therapy, A, because I I was rather poor and I couldn't afford therapy. And I'm very independent. And in fact, so much so that my husband, it drives him crazy. Like I'm fiercely independent. And so I don't want people to help me, but I think that's also a result of the trauma. You know, like you, you get used to doing things self-sufficient. And so, because you have to be when you kind of dealt with stuff like that. And so yoga was the first time that I, when I started practicing Ashtanga, doing the daily practice, which is, you know, that was the first time I'd done it every day. And the expectation was to practice every day. And it enabled me to start down the path of awareness, first of all, and and then possibly healing, you know? Mm. Yeah. So up until that point, how had you dealt with your traumas through through that perfectionism, through that self-sufficiency? I was really angry. I don't know if I was really dealing with it. I think I was pushing it all down. It's funny because I tell people a lot of the time, I was like, you know, because I still... I like things to be a certain way and that's a fault in some regards. 
And I say to people a lot when they get frustrated with me who want it, who have high expectations of other people and as well. And so when, <laughs> when people ask me about it, I was like, well, you should have met me before yoga. <laughs> like I was, in, I was really insufferable. Like I, I really, I just wasn't really happy because I wanted things a certain way and that's just not realistic. Right. So hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, you had to, to protect yourself. You had to control those relationships. Yeah. You know, make sure that people couldn't harm you. Right. That's exactly right. Exactly. So you're controlling and that nails it. Um, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of work to do. And especially since we can't a hundred percent control everyone. Right. Well, we can't control anybody, right? All we can do, yeah. all we can do is control how, how you react to other people. And it's easy to think that, well, it's not easy, but it's, I think most people, it's easier to think that you can control somebody else than it is to change your reaction. Maybe that's not true. I don't know, but maybe with more yoga, it just gets better and better. I don't know, but I think, yeah, your reactions change. So then you're better able to deal with things that you don't control. Um, and you're mm. able to accept that more easily. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, that acceptance piece. Yeah, so then you started doing this this daily practice. Yeah, and that was 2007. Yeah, early 2007 was when I was in Thailand. And then I came back and I had met my husband, my current husband, years before through my ex. So maybe that's the universe, you know, kind of guiding people. I, I don't know. But if it hadn't have been for my ex, I never would have met my current husband. And so it was through a motorcycle group. And I reached out to him when I was in the depths of depression. And I kind of asked for help because I just, I didn't know what to do. And he has suffered chronic depression, basically his whole adult life. And I was looking for some help. And it, not at all did I intend on dating him. It was just, he was the only person that I knew that could maybe help me. And he, he's very intelligent and he, he was very sweet. He's like, Oh, just quit your job. Come. Well, he had invited me to go traveling with him in Europe because we both had motorcycles. That's how I met him was through the motorcycle group. And he was already going cause there's a rally that we go to every year. And he was like, well, you have your bike. You can come with me. We'll travel together. And if we don't get along, then you can just go on your own because you've ridden in Europe by yourself and, and it'll be fine. And I was like, yeah, that's that seems doable. And so I said, yes. And and then things, you know, we, we were just friends for a while and then things kind of shifted and then we ended up, you know, dating later on. But at the time it was more to kind of get myself out of a bad place. And he helped a lot getting me through that. And then when I, I came to New York and I stayed with him for a little while, and then, then I went to India for my first trip. And, and I went back to Thailand a number of times and studied with Paul and with Opi Tuari, Sri Opi Tuari from the Kabaliadam. And then at the end of, by the next year, I went to India and spent like five months in Mysore that next year. Yeah. Yeah. You were hooked. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, and then I was like in Thailand, I wasn't really working. I wasn't making much money or any money at all. And so I couldn't really afford yoga Thailand anymore because it had gotten more expensive. And so I was like, well, why not just go to India, go to the source? And not that I at all 
Yoga Thailand is a beautiful place. And if you can afford it, I, I highly recommend it. It's great, but it's expensive. And I wasn't making any money, like I said. So I was like, well, let's just go to India. And it was great because this was before it got too crowded. And it was still a little crowded for lead practices, but not as crowded as it got before he moved to the new Shala. But I was there for four and a half months and it was fabulous. I mean, that's what I love is Sharat G gave me all of primary because I was only doing half primary when I went to India. And I see that as a total blessing. Like I was brave and I I didn't care. And I hear people saying, oh, I don't want to go until I'm doing full primary. I was like, why? Like, that's silly. Like, just go. Like, it's nothing greater than getting your practice from, you know, Sharat. I mean, for me, that's how I feel about it. And, and it was a very special time. And as hard as it was sitting, I always hated, you know, when, when you don't finish full primary and you have to sit and wait for everybody to finish. And then you start in on back bends. So I was like, ah, that was the worst. And, but it was a good lesson. I think it was just learning the practice and I was okay with that. So it kind of gave you that oomph to keep trying and to keep going and doing it. Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know, because I think some people tuning in may not. The Ashtangis. Yeah. Into the Ashtanga. Yeah. Just to give them a little reference. So, you know, Ashtanga yoga, the way that it works is there are a number of series. I mean, most people work with the first series, which um, yeah. Samantha is referring to primary series. And so you're slowly learning this series piece by piece over time and sometimes practicing actually most of the time at your own pace. So kind of memorizing this sequence and doing it at your own pace and sometimes doing it in a lead class where everyone is doing the poses all together. So a lot of people, what uh, Samantha's saying, a lot of people, they feel like, oh, they should learn this series before they go to India so that they'll know it in advance. But there are benefits to going without that, just that that beginner mindset, that beginner place and just learning straight there. So Well, and you're surrounded by these amazing practitioners that have been doing it for a long time. And Some people feel self-conscious about that. I never did. When I first started standing up from a backbend, I just thought that will just never happen because I literally was an upside down alligator when I first started doing backbends. Like I I was so stiff and um, I just never thought in a million years would that ever happen. But I was inspired, you know, seeing those people, you know, practicing next to Kino and all of these very, very advanced practitioners. It was pretty awesome in my mind. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Renee, you, you know, many people, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things, again, I think some people take that and they they get really inspired. And some people may look at that and be like, you know, my body's never going to do that and get discouraged. I've always wanted to have a really advanced practice, but I think I had an epiphany um, when we talked last was, you know, I feel like maybe, well, I feel we all hold tension and trauma in different ways. And the epiphany that I had when we were talking last time was that, wow, you know, I have had a lot of trauma and maybe that's why my body is so stiff. And it took a lot of work of getting through that. And maybe it took the 
physical work of releasing the, the stiffness to also lead to the emotional work, the strength to do the emotional work that's necessary to deal with trauma and mm. PTSD and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So actually that's exactly where I wanted to go, Sam. Like take us back. You're seeing something's happening with this practice and mm. maybe you can share some of the changes. I know you said that then it's the first time you felt strong enough to deal with some of the traumas in your life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was a lot of days of tears, like just straight up crying whilst practicing. And the nice thing about it was that nobody kind of, A, people left me alone while I was having my moment. And B, I kept practicing through it. Like I, I didn't stop and just melt down. I the tears were coming and I, there was one specific day in Thailand that I just, everything kind of came to a head and granted that was very early on, but I just, and, but after I just cried the entire time through all of practice. And then at the end, wow, there was this amazing like feeling of lightness that I had just released a bunch of stuff that was crazy which was amazing because it made you feel lighter. It made you feel happier and it kind of released just a lot of tension. And I always hold tension in my shoulders and uh, front of my chest. So prasarita parasanasana, which is where you, it's a pretty intense stretch of your arms over your head, prasarita C. I would just cry like every time somebody came to give me an adjustment in that. And it wasn't because it was a physical pain or anything like that. It was just an emotional release. Mm. It was, it was crazy. So that kind of led down to a lot more exploration into therapies, but you know, I still was not really making any money and not sure where my next paycheck was coming. And so I, I was a little nervous about that. So I, I still, I kind of saw it as, and being the independent person that, Oh, I don't need any help. You know, <laughs> um, I thought, well, this is the perfect way to, to heal stuff that definitely worked for a while, but I mean, the asana practice is not going to fix everything. Like you definitely have to do the work as well. And, and so that's how it kind of started. Then after that initial, you know, six weeks, two months, three months of practice, things did start to open up. And then it was just kind of, I was just, you know, totally hooked and loving everything about the practice. And I came back to the city and I was working, I was practicing in New York city and it was just a very kind of a great time. Even though it was a struggle, practice was a struggle, it was still a great exploration of what was happening. Did you notice that some of that perfectionism softened or did you notice any changes in your relationships? Oh, sure. I mean, that was when I was that you know, can you compare me before Ashtanga and after? It's like that need to always be right, that need to argue about politics and all of that stuff went away. I was like, I just, it's like, I have my opinions. I still feel strongly about certain things, but I don't have to change everybody else's mind either. It kind of let go of that, that struggle inside. And yeah, that's really what happened. And so it was just, you know, just pay attention to what you can manage and then, and you know, your reactions, that's all you can control is how you react to other people. I I feel like it became a much nicer person. Like even people like my roommates when I was in, lived in San Francisco, (laughs) you know, there's some funny stories that I won't get into, but you know, me being wanting things a certain way. And I think after we moved out and left, like we lived together for a long time and 
then after I broke up with my ex and started yoga, I mean, they saw a marked change. They're like, wow, you know, she's so much more easygoing. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it was true. It was, I'm totally, di- I was a totally different person. I was like, yep, that's the yoga. <laughs> it's amazing that you were able to get that all from this practice, this moving your body. Well, I think I, well, there again, I feel like, you know, well, it was also, it wasn't only just asana by that, but after the first four or five years, I had done a ton of work. I did a Vipassana. I was sitting every day. I was... Tell people what that is. So Vipassana is kind of, well, I think Vipassana kind of goes very well with Ashtanga. And if you like Ashtanga, you probably would really love a Vipassana, but it is the hardest thing I've ever done. (laughs) You know, um, one of the hardest things is because it's trial by fire. Like you get thrown into the deep end from day one and it's an 11 day... 11 day retreat, 11 day silent retreat. Like you don't speak at all with very strict rules, like so much. So like you you sit for between, you know, five and eight hours a day. And the Vipassana method is you sit perfectly still and you do your best to not fidget and move around. Like you really are trying to sit perfectly still. And there's a whole process of paying attention to your breath and how the breath is flowing through your nose and practicing like when the thoughts come, you say, okay, that's a thought, you accept it and then you let it move on and then you take your focus right back to the breath again. So it's hard, like really hard. Yeah. And it's really intense. And some people would even say, you know, not trauma sensitive, but I think you had done so much work already. Yeah, I agree. If I had done that before I had started practicing yoga at all, I think, yeah, it can be a little crazy. Like it, it definitely is not. I mean, I was so mad. My friend who had recommended it to me, she's like, oh, it's the best thing you'll ever do. For literally the first three days, I was like, what the hell was she talking about? I'm going to kill her when I'm (laughs) done with this. (laughs) And so, um, and we laugh, laugh about it now. But at the end, like that on the last day when you're then able to talk and, but everything just starts to, you come away again with that light feeling, like Mm. the heaviness of life just, it enables you to kind of take stuff in that's happening in your life and shift it and, and have a different perspective about it, not shift it, but how you react to it. That most of the things that cause us problems in our daily lives are really not that important. And if we can just get the right mindset about it, then you can live a much more calm existence. I, I need to do another Vipassana. We've been talking about it and COVID kind of put that all away. I was talking about it when COVID started. So, but I'm ready to go. I, I definitely want to go do another one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so Ashtanga practice, Vipassana, some talk yeah. therapy. Yeah, I also did with uh, somebody in Mysore, I did a, um, a few sessions of the past life regression therapy. And that was a really interesting experience at all. It kind of it kind of put us, I don't know whether the stories that came up were actually what happened, but it, it kind of gave a, a story behind my adoption, my birth story. And it enabled me to kind of let go of maybe some of the difficulties of being adopted and and being given up as a child and the abandonment issues that most adopted people have. Wow. Yeah. I think having a story, a story is so important to us, right? Our context. 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and that's what I said is even if it, like I said, if, if it, even if it wasn't a real, what really happened, it doesn't really matter because it enabled me to let go of some of the trauma, the, the stuff that was holding me back. So, yeah. That's incredible, Samantha. You've definitely done the work. Well, there's still more, right? I mean, then, you know, that's funny. Well, that kind of segues perfectly into the next thing is though in 2016, I was in a really terrible motorcycle accident. I was passing a truck and made a mistake and it ended up that the the truck ran over my leg and I lost my leg that night in Aberdeen because we were on a, our yearly motorcycle trip. And the funny thing is, is when you have a massive trauma like that, you revert definitely. Like that first year after the accident, granted, it was difficult. I was in the hospital for 41 days. I had 14 surgeries over the next year and a half. The first eight happening within the first, those 41 days, it was a lot. And it it takes you back. Like you really, a trauma that massive. And I'm not um, diminishing anybody else's trauma if they hurt themselves, you know, if they break a leg or need a surgery, like that's traumatic too. But when you have to re-figure out how you're going to continue to live life when you lose a limb, you know, it changes everything because everything is a struggle. So you definitely, you know, you revert back to some of those patterns. And I, you know, that first year was, well, the first two years was really, really difficult. And you go back to, you know, I was definitely depressed and I was seeing therapists and I was still practicing in the way that I could, but it wasn't that much different. So, I mean, I was, I started practicing in the hospital right after. And the funny thing was, is that I was visualizing my practice for the first like week or so, but also I was getting phantom pain that most people have heard about. It's when you lose a limb, your nerves are still firing and your brain still thinks that that limb is there. So you are still feeling pain in the limb that's not there. So your brain thinks that it's there. So you're still feeling it. And so just in, I don't know, cause I was on a lot of medication, pain medication. I don't know what made me put two and two together. Maybe it was just because I've been practicing yoga for so long. I was like, you know, I need to train my brain that my limb is no longer there. And so like the second or third day I started doing yoga nidra, which is a body scanning technique. And I would do my whole body. But then when I got to my right leg, which was no longer there, I would just say over and over, it's not there. It's not there. And I did it twice a day for like two weeks. And if you talk to other amputees, most of them say they suffer from, from phantom pain. I mean, the good majority. And I have not had any phantom pain since the two weeks of doing yoga nidra, which is crazy. Sam, that's incredible. <laughs> that's really incredible. Now, maybe I was ahead of the game because I'd been doing this yoga practice for so long. By that time, I'd been practicing for what, 14, 12 years. I, I can't do the math that quick. And there was just something. And even so I was already connected with my body in a really good way from doing this yoga practice, very deep asana practice for so many years. And then I feel like it just, I, you know, I had that connection. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm super happy because a lot of people end up 
getting on these heavy duty meds that really mess with your brain and to stop the phantom pain. And like I did take some of those medications in that first year and it made it, I couldn't read, like not that I couldn't read the words, but like I couldn't, like if I was reading a book, for example, I couldn't like read a paragraph and remember when I got to the next paragraph, what the prior paragraph was about. Mm -hmm. So like I, I couldn't, everybody wonders, wonderful. Oh, you have all this free time. You could, you know, do all of this stuff when you're recovering, but some of those meds just make it impossible. And I am an avid knitter, sewer, crocheter, and I couldn't knit at all because I couldn't remember patterns. I couldn't like get the, cause that's, it's all about repetitive patterns when you're knitting. And I just, I, my brain just couldn't do it. And so I only took those meds for like six months And then it took another year after that before I could really read books and start to really like process things in my brain again. So it's crazy. And I don't think people really realize that. And in the amputee community, you know, I tell my story and I'm just like, that stuff is so hard. Like no wonder people sit and veg out in front of the TV because that's all, I mean, I, I'm honest, I, I, that's all I did. I just laid around because I was a, in a lot of pain and, and struggling but there was nothing else I could do. It was a struggle. But, and the other thing I wanted to say about the practice too, is that, so in those first few weeks, Jeff, my husband would always, he was there with me. And then my other friend, Martin, who practiced in India, he he was my roommate. We shared an apartment in Mysore for a long time. He went with us on the motorcycle trip as well. And they both had said, you know, do your practice. And the days that like, I didn't get it done for whatever reason, maybe the doctors came in, there was this whole thing with blood tests, like getting blood every morning, which was a disaster. And if it messed up, I didn't do my practice. Then when Jeff arrived at seven in the morning, he would immediately know that I hadn't practiced. And because my ability to cope with all that was happening was severely compromised. Like I was much more able to function and make decisions and be not a, you know, big ball of crying mess when I practiced. And so, and it was clear because Jeff would immediately say, as soon as he's like, did you practice today? (laughs) It's like, no. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, I can tell, you know, like he could tell, like my whole countenance was different when I wasn't practicing. And and when you're in the thick of something so difficult, your emotions are right on the edge and you have to practice. Well, I had to practice and it just, it did make everything much, much better when I practiced. And that that, you know, through and through, like after I got divorced, yoga helped. It got me out of it. Like it brought me out of that depression. When I was in that really stressful situation at school, even though I wasn't really deeply practicing, there was a small thing that helped me bring me out of this really difficult situation. And so that's why, I mean, through experience of practicing for 15 years, like I knew that yoga was going to be the answer, at least to be able to emotionally cope. Mm. And there was one period where I wasn't practicing because I was in a lot of pain, everything hurt, and I was still healing. Like it took a long time for the skin grafts to heal and the skin to heal around my leg. And there was a period, maybe like a month or so. And, and Jeff, he's came and I was just in a bad way. And he said, you have to start practicing. Like, 
period. Like whatever that is, you need to start practicing. And, and I, of course was mad at him. I was like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) But he was absolutely right. And I thank him for that now. I mean, he, at the time it was, you know, telling me what to do is, is difficult. No, I don't like it when people tell me what to do. And, um, but he had to do it. And cause he knew that I was in a bad place and he was absolutely right. So what I did was I would kind of trick myself and I would just say, okay, like my goal for the day, like literally, cause I could barely walk. I couldn't get around. I was in a wheelchair at the house and, um, I was like, whatever you do, the only thing you have to do today is a couple sun salutations. And or whatever you can do, you have to get to the mat and you have to do something. And there was no expectation on what was necessary. Just do it. And sure enough, like I did do that and I got to the mat and it just started to fix everything. And, you know, I think people think that, well, and I didn't know after my accident, I was like, how am I ever going to practice yoga again? And then I just started doing it. And then as I got stronger and as the meds started to like get out of my body, because that was the thing that stopped me most of the time was I would feel really sick, like a nauseous after and almost wanting to throw up when physically you had done too much. And I think the meds in your system do that. And so what I would do is I would just practice until I was almost going to get sick <laughs> and then I'd stop and lay down. <laughs> And it's crazy. It sounds crazy now, but at the time that was all I could do. And so then I would stop. And then the next day, maybe I was a little better and I would do a little bit more, but that was a whole process of purging all of those antibiotics and all of the heavy duty medicines that I was had to take for the multiple surgeries and anesthesia and all of that. It's really hard on the body. Yes. A lot of people don't realize how long that stuff stays in your body. Yeah, I would say like after the last surgery was like 2017, you know, it's still, it took like a a good six months to a year to really be kind of clear of all of that when I'd stopped, when I wasn't taking pain meds anymore. And I still occasionally take an ibuprofen, but it's not usually for my leg. My leg is basically, it's usually other things because now that I've been an amputee for a while, there's some residual stuff that happens. And, and I used this walking crutch for a long time. I even practiced on it. There's some pictures on the internet of me with using it, but it messed up my gait. And I'm still working to get my gait back because the bad gait messes up. It hurts your back. And yeah, so it, it all is connected. So you, you <laughs> yes, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you know, the, the anesthesia, it stays in the body a lot longer than, than people realize six months to a year, you can have personality change, mood change. And the trauma too has some of those similar impacts of that brain fog that you were describing earlier, where you really can't, you can't read, you can't concentrate, which of course is stressful, right? You start to feel like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I think? Especially someone right. like you who's so intelligent and has leaned on your smarts for most of your life as, you know, something well, thank you, you have. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. Yeah, I remember talking to Jeff and saying something about like a friend was taking their child to a pediatrician and I could not remember pediatrician. And I was like, you know, the kid's doctor, what's it called? You know, yeah. like it couldn't, I, you know, and trying to recall stuff and, and you're just like, wow, what's happening? Like, how is, you know, it's crazy. Super scary. Like, I actually had that after, after um, mm-hmm. 
giving birth. And I was like, okay, I'm just never going to have my brain again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, after, well, I think that pregnancy brain is a real thing and it shifts like when you're pregnant and then after you're pregnant, because the hormones are just insane. And yeah, I think that's just, yes, (laughs) we all have to give everybody a little bit of grace Mm. when it comes to that. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. And I actually, that leads me to a well, I wanted to say one thing. I mean, we're, we're lucky to have that set sequence of postures because you don't have to think, mm-hmm. you just do it. It's right. so ingrained in all your many, many years of practice and a partner who can really see you and remind you and knows that tool works for you. Yes. Well, because, and well, I'll add to that is that uh, even now, like it's so annoying because like, let's say somebody is in the yoga studio or I, I mean, I shut down at COVID and when COVID happened, so I, and I haven't opened up yet again, but if I'm even going to, I'm not sure I'm going to, but when people come and practice with me, I can see, oh, well try this and do this and blah, blah, blah. And that might help. And you know, you get students coming back saying, oh yeah, that was a great idea. Thank you. Blah, blah, blah. But for myself, it's ridiculous. Like I just, I think in my mind that I can fix myself. And in reality, that is just, you don't see your struggle in yourself at all. Mm. Like, so with an amp, with a prosthesis, you wear these socks inside because sometimes I don't have this so much, but in the beginning you swell, like the end of your leg swells. It's called, they call it the residual limb. That's the PC term for the end of a limb loss part of your body. And it will swell as you're putting pressure on it and walking, et cetera, or it'll shrink during the day. So you have to add socks to add padding into your socket. And I can't tell you how many times, like my, I would call my prosthetist with a problem and say, Hey, this is what's happening. He's like, did you add socks? And I was Mm. like, no, (laughs) you know, it's just stupid. And, And it took me until this year, like, of course I know if you're walking with the limp over a long period of time, you're going to cause yourself structural problems. But until I started getting some really severe back pain, I was like, oh. And so I went to a PT that specializes in amputees. And you would just laugh if you saw the exercises he gave me that made a world of difference that in, of course, I know what to do, but I didn't do that yeah. because it's prescribing for yourself. Hearing and it from someone just... else is a different... <laughs> Is a, it's a different story. And I wonder, that leads me to something I wanted to ask you, which is about, you know, what are, what are some of the best things that teachers have done for you, whether it's advice or backing off? I know you mentioned earlier a teacher just letting you cry. What are the things that teachers or other therapists or practitioners that have led you in your life done that have really helped you? Well, I mean... I'm very lucky in that I have a very good relationship with my main teachers. And those, those are, are Eddie Stern and Sherat Joyce. And, you know, the best thing that they did was they kind of gave me carte blanche. They met me on the mat where I was. And that's not always the case. And I think with younger teachers too, like, or not younger in age, but less years of teaching, and I did it in the beginning too, is like you impose what you think they should be doing on the student. And Eddie and Shiratji never have done that. Like never. They always met me on my mat. And then after the accident, they were even more 
conscientious of just letting me kind of figure stuff out and giving suggestions and see and say, we'll try this. And, but that I think is the biggest, especially when you're dealing with, with a trauma, because you're bringing up a lot of that. Well, for sure. I had PTSD for a long time. I mean, I still have it. I, I blew a tire out on the New Jersey turnpike on Sunday and had to change the tire. And I had a little bit of a freak out in the car um, because the, of course it was the outside tire. So I had to change the tire on the side of the, um, <laughs> of the road. And I was like freaking out, but it's like, it took me a minute. I calmed down and I breathed and I was like, okay, come on, you're a tough girl. You can do this. And I did, but it's like, sometimes you need that space and that time to calm down. And like the first time I went back to Eddie's that first day, I mean, of course I started crying when I got there and, but it was, he gave me that space to kind of explore. And I mean, I think too, because I've been practicing for so long that you develop an innate sense of what works and what doesn't in your own physical practice. And even though like my physical practice is a lot more basic than it was before my accident, just because I've lost some mobility and strength in my back and that's going to take some time and flexibility has definitely lessened because I've, you know, the trauma created more tightness. It's just going to take time and building up strength in a different way because you don't, you no longer have all those muscles in your leg that you had that were helping you do stuff. But to answer your question is that giving a student some space to kind of work through their stuff is really important. And if they're having an emotional breakdown, for me, it was like, just let me be. I hated it when people come up, oh, blah, 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 can I help? And blah, blah, blah. No, sometimes you just need your space to be able to kind of process those feelings. And and often it's a release. Like if you have an emotional outbreak, then afterwards you can, hopefully the emotion is not anger, but in a class setting, but sometimes it is. And I think teachers not taking it personally and, and that, well, I think in that case for me, it was my husband not taking it personally. Mm. (laughs) You know, I didn't, I don't get angry at, I haven't had enough anger outbreak, you know, to a teacher, but definitely to my husband and he didn't take it personally. And he tried to meet me where I was. And I think that's the biggest lesson to be learned for teachers is you have no idea the depth of somebody's trauma, how many levels, how many things have happened in their lifetimes, you know, that have led them to the way, the resistance that you might see in a practice. And you might think that they're just being resistant to you. And it's not that way. It's it's usually a resistance to whatever trauma they've suffered and they're trying to protect themselves and in a really vulnerable place because an asana room is a vulnerable place for most people. Wow, Sam. I actually can't think of a better way to close out than with that message. (laughs) Such an important message. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And for sharing your story really vulnerably. I really, I deeply appreciate that. What's coming up for you? Where do you see your road to healing headed? What are your next steps? Well, I think, you know, I think I'm just going to keep practicing. And I did leave the yoga world as a way to make money because it was just with COVID, I had to shut down and it just wasn't happening. So I I, I did start another career in the real estate business. 
which I'm loving. Hudson Valley has been rather insane, <laughs> um, which is where I live in upstate New York. And um, after COVID or during COVID, it, it's just been crazy. So it's been kind of fun because you get to see some really interesting homes and some very interesting people who I, I can't say who, but we have some pretty, we have a pretty cool client list. So that's been kind of fun because we've signed NDAs. Sadly, I would love to say, but I can't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think I will always practice. I will just continue to practice. And I feel like that is a good thing. And, and hopefully continue to, to, you know, meet with the community like this in what you're doing and writing this book is, I think, really, really important to help teachers have a better understanding of how to deal because so many people are drawn to an intense yoga practice who have gone through intense situations like what you're doing in the city with inner city people and like what Taylor's doing in Columbus and, and in Ohio, you know, I think that if I can kind of encourage somebody to just keep trying and get on the mat, then I'd be happy with that. Yeah. Wow. And that is such a good insight. Like, People who have been through intense things get drawn to an, an intense practice. So, right. if you're, uh, you know, facilitating a practice like Ashtanga, if you're a teacher, you know, you you can assume that many of the folks that are entering your room have some stuff that they're they're working out. Mm-hmm. Just assume that going into it. Well, Sam, this has been wonderful. Um, I hope you lead a yoga nidra for folks who have lost limbs. I think you might have something special there. That's right. And uh, yes, I I mean, I I definitely on the the groups that I'm in therapy groups, I definitely tell people and a lot of people who've never practiced yoga before, I was like, you know, really, this really worked for me. And maybe that's the entrance into the yoga practice is through a meditation practice and it, it feels good. And it's pretty cool. And it's amazing what the brain can do. You know, if you know the tools in which to change the way the brain works, and yoga nidra is a super powerful one, but so is meditation and so is asana and all of this, the sitting practice in, in terms of meditation, but they all have such a powerful effect. And it's hard to relate that to people without experiencing it. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's the future. Maybe I'll do a yoga nidra for, for amputees or limb loss is the PC term now. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, I think you have something there, Sam, and, and ability to teach that in a way that someone who hasn't been through that experience couldn't do. So something unique to you to come out of a very tough experience. But whatever you do, Sam, I know it's going to be wonderful and I'm going to be following and supporting you. And likewise, I, I mean, I'm super excited for this book to come out and uh I will, you know, buy it for all of my friends. So I can't wait. <laughs> Yay. Awesome, Sam. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Lara. We'll see you soon. Yes, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through centuries we will collide and the light will bend we will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land